You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am Kathy Biasa, your host, and I am a holistic nutritionist and professional cancer coach. Neuroinflammation and its connection to our immune system is the topic of our conversation today with Dr. Gary Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is the founder and medical director of the Kaplan Center for Integrative Medicine and the author of Total Recovery, a revolutionary new approach to breaking the cycle of pain and depression. A pioneer and leader in the field of integrative medicine, Dr. Kaplan is one of only 19 physicians in the United States to be board certified in both family medicine and pain medicine. Dr. Kaplan is passionate about using multidisciplinary and alternative medicine strategies to address underlying chronic conditions. His forthcoming book, Why You Are Still Sick, is set to be released in June of this year, 2022. Neuroinflammation, its connection to uh, disease, chronic disease, symptomology that really can't be explained. This is a, a burgeoning subject. This is a topic that is really taking on traction when it comes to um, pain, to depression, um, diseases in childhood that may be misdiagnosed or or go undiagnosed. Um, Relevant, relevant conversation for all ages. We talk about neuroinflammation and um, anti-aging, for instance. So the topic has relevance for everybody. We talk about the connection between neuroinflammation and the immune system genetics, epigenetics, toxins, and their link to neuroinflammation. We do discuss common diseases that have now found to be associated with neuroinflammation, including PANS and PANDAS, fibromyalgia, and depression. Love for you to stay tuned. Great topic. Uh, Dr. Kaplan is very approachable in the way he speaks. He is uh, wonderful to listen to, a wealth of information. So please stick with us. We will be back in just a few minutes to talk to Dr. Gary Kaplan. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show is being recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all those locations. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I am delighted to be here, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's going to offer our listeners so much information, what you're doing, and I'm hoping at least, you know, I was told by some person, if we can change one person's life, 
more positively in our own lifetime, we've done our duty here as humans. And I think that this is something that, um, you know, I'm hoping people will take hold of and really get a, a, you know, maybe this aha moment. The topic of conversation here is neuroinflammation. And let's, let's talk about neuroinflammation. How, I don't know, did you backdoor into this conversation when you started, you know, discovering the connections between sort of undiagnosed or misdiagnosed diseases? How did you fall into this field? So a number of ways, as a matter of fact, one of, one of the ways that I fell into it is I'm a chronic pain specialist in addition to being a family practitioner. And I was treating patients uh, with uh, morphine for chronic pain uh, and finding that they were getting depressed. And then when I take them off the morphine, their pain had come back, but their depression would go away. And so we started looking at, uh, I got together a working group from, I'm at Georgetown and I got together a working group um, of colleagues, of psychiatrists from uh, NIH and uh, neuroscientists from uh, Georgetown and said, okay, guys, what am I missing? What do, we, what do we need to do better? And the answer ultimately turned out to be inflammation. And we originally looked at inflammation in the brain uh, on one part of the nervous system called the innate immune system. And then we looked at it more recently in this most recent book that I've written. Uh, so my first book, Total Recovery, was about the innate system and how that got inflamed. This second book that I've written uh, that'll be coming out in uh, June, uh, June 14th, is Why You're Still Sick. And it's about uh, how you get to be inflamed to begin with and why you stay inflamed and what you can do to get better. And then it turns out that as we're looking at this, uh, I started seeing a number of kids who had conditions such as PANS, PANDAS. So this is this pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric uh, associated with strep infections is PANDAS. And uh, acute pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome associated with other infections, such as Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr, which is mono and influenza, and now uh, post-COVID. So we made this connection and said, wait a minute, it's not just the kids. And Suedo did brilliant research uh, on uh, looking at how these infections were setting off the immune system, which then set off inflammation in the brains of these kids. Uh, and I object, her, her labeling of the topic is fine, except the focus is too much on neuropsychiatric and not enough on the totality of symptoms that occurs in these kids, uh, which can be quite remarkable. But it also, it's not just kids. It's also what's happening in the adults. And as we started looking at this more and more, we said, holy mackerel, uh, this is not just an inflammation of the brain occurring in kids, but we're seeing in chronic fatigue syndrome. This is what we're seeing in chronic pain syndromes. This is what we're seeing in the post-Lyme syndrome. This is what we're seeing in major depressive disorders and in obsessive compulsive disorders. And as we started looking into the research on this, sure enough, there was lots and lots and lots, so much so that the book I just wrote, I had well over a thousand references by the time uh, I finished writing the book. And so the reality is there's a lot of information in literature, but we don't think of these diseases as neuroinflammatory diseases. We think of them as their symptoms. We label them by, you know, chronic pain is pain, right? Fatigue is fatigue. And it, we don't talk about the biology of it. And as such, our ability to treat it pretty much stinks. And the same thing happens with these kids. A lot of these kids with the, uh, the pans pandas have some pretty bizarre behaviors that can occur. And they're told they're psychiatric cases. 
And the real tragedy here is that these kids are not crazy. They're sick. And the failure to recognize that ends up putting these kids in psychiatric hospitals, ends up having them bounce from psychiatrists, like psychiatrists, and ends up with their self-esteem destroyed and their not getting any better as their brain remains inflamed over years, uh, more and more problems. So let me give you an example. So I had uh, a young woman uh, come into my practice who has a tick, right? She's in, she's uh, 16 years old and she's got this little tick that makes a sound with it. So whoo, whoo. And uh, in addition to that, uh, she's got, problems with focus, concentration. She has problems with sleep. Uh, she has problems uh, with depression. And you start seeing all this stuff and it's a generalized problem. It's not a thing. So it's not like she sprained her ankle. So as you start working on this and she's been treated by multiple psychiatrists, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this is kind of a classic pants pandas presentation. And sure enough, in her, we found that she's got Lyme disease. And one of the other things that happened is we started treating her for Lyme disease. She uh, stopped walking, went paralysis from the waist down. Parents called me in an understandable panic. And I said, okay, this is not unusual. I said, we need to make sure from a neurologic standpoint that we're not missing anything else. But, um, but I had to take him to the emergency room. I'm evaluated by the neurologist. And the neurologist did the predictable thing, which was tell her she was crazy. Ultimately, they didn't find anything. I said, she needs to be seen by a psychiatrist. I said, fine, bring her home. She'll be walking in two weeks. And indeed, she was. But this kind of behavior, these really unusual presentations, is common what we see in these Pans Pans kids. We can see some rage behaviors. We can see uh, one kid who did thousands of dollars worth of damage to the house every time he went into one of these rage attacks. Sweetest kid you can imagine in between these episodes. And so we see this continuously and you see it in one kid and you kind of go, well, maybe it is psychiatric, but you see it in two kids and you're going, wait a minute, this is something going on here. And three kids and four kids and five kids. And now you're going, okay, there's a problem here. And once we started looking for these infections and treating the infections and then treating the immune damage that had been done that caused the immune system to turn on itself. So what happens in these people is that the infection causes the immune system to overfire. The immune system then starts mistaking our own tissue, more commonly the brain, as the problem, and then starts attacking the brain. So that's an autoimmune problem. And so you've got to get rid of the infection because the immune system is supposed to be at fighting the infection. But you then also have to treat the immune system itself to quiet that down so it'll quit attacking ourselves. It turns out that the pants pandas became actually a brilliant model for saying, wait a minute, this is also happening in adults. And so as this is happening in adults, their presentations are a bit different. Their presentations are depressive disorders that aren't responsive to medications, their presentations. And again, you've got to look at the totality of the presentation. So it's not just one thing, but rather the digestive systems are off. They're having problems mm -hmm. maintaining their blood pressure. They're having problems uh, with a whole sleep and psychological issues uh, in addition to pain issues and fatigue. And as you start putting that picture together, you go, oh, wait a minute, we have a brain inflammation. 
and more commonly and way more commonly than has been recognized, uh, these brain inflammations are set off by a whole variety of different infections. And we now believe that of the 20 million people who are struggling with these conditions, at least 25 to 40 percent actually have an infection that wasn't properly diagnosed and an autoimmune process that's now attacking their brains. And as such, we're treating these people grossly inappropriately and we're not getting them better. There's well, a new path forward. I've got so many questions popping up. Oh, okay. So you, you talked about the strep connection with the pans pandas um, and in the Lyme connection underlying infection so it can be I, i'm assuming that that you've got you've narrowed it down to some but there could be a, a, a numerable different types of infections that can cause the neuroinfection. um now what about what jumps out to me here is the connection with the gut and if there maybe hasn't been an infection per se we know that there's a gut neuro connection is that also in the picture so we can't limit it just to an infection Oh, absolutely. The um, and it get, so it's a it's a complex picture that you're looking mm -hmm. at, right? So the the gut is got about seventy five percent of our immune system in it. So uh, if the gut's not healthy, the brain's not healthy. If the brain's not healthy, the gut's not healthy. So you have to be attentive to. Uh, what's going on, especially if the brain gets inflamed, you may have motility problems where the gut's not moving the way it should. The end result is either constipation or diarrhea. And the real end result is the gut microbiome, which is this about two, two and a half pounds of material that is made up of bacterial uh, RNA and DNA and viral particles and uh, mold. But all of this is kind of a second brain. Mm -hmm. And if that's not healthy, then the gut wall is not healthy. If the gut wall is not healthy, the gut is a very fine filter, and it needs to make sure that it only lets in the nutrients and keeps out the bad stuff. But what happens is when the gut microbiome is disrupted, the gut wall is disrupted, and now large molecules of food start coming across into the bloodstream. Body does not like large molecules. The body looks at large molecules and says, that, that is something I need to attack and make an antibody to. Well, the next thing you know, you're allergic to not one, not two, but 30, 40 different foods that you wouldn't be allergic to if your gut were healthy. So in the process of treating people, you need to treat the totality of them. You need to make sure their diets are okay. You need to heal the gut. You need to make sure the gut microbiome is healthy. Uh, and so there's a lot of different tests that we'll do in the process of, if you will, putting people back together. So it's not just looking at one thing. And especially if you're going after infections with antibiotics, you got to protect the gut and you've got to treat it with probiotics and you got to treat it with uh, prebiotics. And you've, you've got to be paying a lot of attention to what you're doing, because anytime you do one thing in the body, there are six other consequences. Mm -hmm protecting the gut. And usually what we'll do with people when we first start them out, we'll put them on a hypoallergenic diet, rice, fish, chicken, fresh fruits, and vegetables. Keep it simple. I want to eliminate all gluten I want to, and wheat products for that matter. I want to eliminate all milk and milk products. I want to eliminate corn. I want to eliminate nuts. Uh, I'll allow for red meat if it's organic and everything has to be organic when we're doing these diets. Um, and so I want to challenge the system as little as possible um, by taking away foods that I know we become sensitized to. And the interesting thing about 
gluten is that while 1% of the population has true celiac disease, and that is, and I had one kid who came in to see me severely depressed, um, suicidal, he tried to hang himself, and uh, he was not responding to any of the antidepressant medications. And they sent him to me asking whether or not he had inflammation in his brain. The answer was, yeah, he did, but not from an infection, but from celiac disease. And so he had true celiac disease. About 5% of celiacs will present with only neuropsychiatric symptoms and no gut problems. And when we took him off all gluten, we did other things in order to help seal and repair his gut. Within a year's time, he's off all antidepressants. He was completely cured. I've seen him on and off now over the years. He's had no recurrent depression. Uh, he's doing exceptionally well. So you have to pay attention to the gut. The other piece I want to say on celiac is gluten sensitivity is about 6 to 18% of the population. I don't think it's gluten sensitivity. I think it's like glyphosate sensitivity, meaning that the agents we use as herbicides, uh, the GMOs, genetically modified seeds, are designed to be resistant to the chemicals we put on plants in order to prevent the uh, weeds and whatnot from growing, allowing higher crop yield. But the plants take up the, the herbicides, the end result of which is they takes it up in the herbicide and it ends up in your Cheerios because it doesn't get processed out. So now you're eating herbicides and it turns out pesticides and herbicides aren't good for us. And so I think a lot of people who are sensitive to gluten are actually sensitive to uh, the pesticides and the herbicides we're putting on our food that ends up not being processed out, but ends up on our dinner table. Which would make sense because it's a protein, right? And we do, by nature, absorb proteins, break them down. Absolutely, positively. Mm -hmm. And I have patients who can go to France, say, where they don't allow GMOs. Yeah. They can eat their croissants, they can eat the baguettes, and they don't have any reaction whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, is there, uh, this seems like a highly investigative type of working with people. Can you image the brain to see if there is, in fact, inflammation? So, the answer is yes, we can image the brain to see if there's inflammation. Uh, however, as a rule, we don't because uh, they're really experimental procedures. So there's a PET scan uh, that we can do that will look at microglial inflammation. So microglia is the innate uh, immune system in the central nervous system. And interestingly enough, in people who have in Alzheimer's, if you have lots of the changes in the brain that we see with Alzheimer's, this is beta amyloid deposition and, and tau tangles. Uh, if you see that in the brain, but the microglia are not in an inflammatory mode, you don't have Alzheimer's. So inflammation is the key to Alzheimer's. Inflammation is the key to Parkinson's disease. Brain inflammation is the key to amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and multiple sclerosis. And increasingly, we're finding, and it's the key to aging. So we want to be doing everything we can to reduce the inflammatory reaction and inflammation means you're affecting the immune system. Is the end result of years of chronic brain inflammation, degenerative brain diseases like Alzheimer's, 
Is this yes. built upon, you know, as a child, you know, if you have a child that maybe has had undiagnosed pans or pandas, is this an evolution into another disease and then an evolution? And then, so this is actually an anti-aging issue. It's unquestionably an anti-aging issue. Uh, and the direct connection between the evolution from pans pandas into something like uh, Alzheimer's or whatnot has not been shown. Uh, those studies haven't been done yet, but we do know that neuroinflammation equals neurodegeneration, meaning that your brain is getting smaller as a result of chronic inflammation. We don't want that happening. And there's a variety of other things that can create that inflammation, mold and mold toxins, pollutants in the air, uh, heavy metals, lead, mercury, and just saw a young woman who has uh, PANS, and one of her problems is mercury toxicity. Now, how did she get mercury? Well, in the process of taking a history, I found out that the only thing she'll eat for lunch is tuna fish. Hmm. She's eating tuna fish sandwiches every single day. We have horribly soiled our nest, the end result of which is the FDA says that if you're pregnant, you shouldn't have more than two cans of tuna fish a week. Mm -hmm. Well, why on earth should the rest of us be eating this? <laughs> Yeah, makes absolute sense, you know, and I work with people, it's not just tuna fish, right? Any fish. And this goes to diet and balance and all of that stuff. Let's take a quick break here. I don't want to interrupt a great thought process. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back and, and continue with the show, everybody. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Kaplan, we have a lot to cover second half, so I want to dig right into it. Um, preface this second half by saying that um, you are an integrative physician. So reenact the process where you've started to pull in other modalities to benefit the medical profession that you have? So my base training is uh, board certified in family medicine, uh, and I'm board certified in pain medicine. There's actually only 18 of us in the country who are board certified both in pain medicine and family medicine. So I'm a very grounded in, in conventional medicine. I have uh, done consulting work at NIH. I served on the advisory committee for uh, chronic fatigue syndrome at Health and Human Services for uh, four years. So this is, I come from a very academic grounded background in terms of conventional medicine, but I also treat a group of people who have been horribly neglected and horribly abused by the profession for failure to understand what's wrong with them. And looking into functional medicine in particular, uh, this was looking at ways in which not just the anatomy of the gut, which we look at when we uh, do a uh, colonoscopy or an endoscopy, but rather looking at how the digestive system is functioning. What's the gut microbiome look like? And so doing additional testing to be able to understand uh, the health of the gut and the health of your digestion uh, became very important. And so I was taking up and studying integrative medicine. I'm also an acupuncturist. I've been, I was uh, one of the founding board members of the American Academy of Medical Acupuncture, and I served on the research committee, uh, president of the Medical Acupuncture Research Foundation for about five years. And I was also one of the people who helped bring acupuncture into mainstream uh, medicine 
I've never heard of a medical acupuncture um, designation. Well, medical yeah, acupuncture. We have a bunch of us. Is the American Academy of Medical Acupuncture uh, that's been around since 1988, uh, and we were the ones who went to NIH and through a consensus conference process helped establish acupuncture as part of the practice of medicine in this country. And that was in 1996, I believe. That's amazing. So, um, so acupuncture has been acknowledged by the medical profession as an important and useful tool uh, since that time. So it's about bringing in what works. And ultimately, I'm a clinician, right? I treat people. And so it's nice to be in academics and do research, but the bottom line is, does what I do make a difference in somebody's life? And that's the most important thing. I need to see people get better. And if I'm doing things and uh, people aren't getting better, I need to stop doing those and I need to go do something else. And that's got me deep into uh, functional medicine and integrative medicine. Uh, it's got me uh, deep into, I'm also an osteopath, so I'm uh, trained in manual therapy and I believe in the importance of that work. Our center um, has uh an acupuncturist herbalist who we work with. We have three physical therapists we work with. We have a nutritionist and we have a psychiatrist because the, the other part of what weakens us and sets us up for all kinds of problems, stress, yes, but early childhood trauma. Early childhood trauma is unfortunately viewed as separate and apart from what happens to our health. But the reality of the matter is uh, child abuse, uh, child neglect, sets us up for uh, autoimmune diseases. As we get older, it sets us up for cardiac disease. It sets us up for obesity and diabetes. Uh, early childhood traumas have horrific effects on our long-term health. And being able to address that is a critical part of what we do as part of our therapies for these patients. You know, we're seeing people who have been sick for years. My average patient has seen 15 to 20 other physicians before we get to see them. Uh, and these are conditions of chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic Lyme, post-treatment Lyme syndrome. Uh, we're seeing now lots of people with uh, long-haul COVID, post-COVID, mm -hmm. post-acute COVID, major depressive disorders, which have otherwise not been responsive uh, to the conventional therapies, and of course, PANS, PANDAS, and obsessive compulsive disorders. And these, it turns out, as we've been doing further investigation, are all manifestations of neuroinflammation, inflammation in the brain. And then the question becomes, okay, what are the things that are causing that inflammation? And so uh, one of the things we did, because we're trying to convince the rest of our colleagues that this stuff is real and important, and so part of it is through research and publications, but I just hosted an international conference in February uh, with some of the top people in the world, we did it through Georgetown. It was a medical conference, so it was uh, it can get a bit deep at times. But it was looking at this whole concept of neuroinflammation and uh, the different aspects of it. This is the first time a conference of this kind has ever been held, and you can still see that conference. It's available uh, on the uh, HopeHealingKnowledge.com hopehealingknowledge.com uh, at the Foundation for Total Recovery, uh, which was one of the sponsors of this program. Uh, and so you can see that program. Uh, you, there's a fee for the public to see it, but it's not expensive. Uh, and there's a second program that goes with that where a colleague of mine and I 
uh, sat for two hours and made sure we addressed the overwhelming concerns of people during the conference because much of the public was there. Now, you know, to, to interrupt here, because I, I know uh, uh, some functional doctors, and I have to give you so much credit for what you're doing, because I had one functional doctor tell me that he wasn't sure if he was a square peg trying to fit into a circle or a circle trying into it, because it takes so much effort to do this, even like just in your own practice to be acknowledged by the medical community as a whole, and then for you to drive this even farther forward with what you're doing, you must find that at some point you yourself are getting fatigued and exhausted. Um, no, I love what I do. <laughs> um, the, uh, I don't spend a lot of time focused on what my colleagues are doing or not doing. I spent a lot of time looking at the fact that I got 20 million people out there who need better medicine, probably more than 20 million, but I know for certain there's 20 million who need much better medicine. And I get up every day knowing I have the opportunity to potentially help them. Uh, kudos to you because you're, you're moving the marker and you are probably saving the lives of people you don't even know. And that's why forums and platforms like this are so important, I think. Now, um, genetics, toxins, let's get into those and where do they fit into the picture here? So genetics is an evolving piece of information, rapidly evolving piece of information. And uh, we're learning that the setup is there, but just because you have the setup, so let's go back to celiac disease, 30% of the population has genetics that predispose them to development of celiac disease, 30%. But of those people, only 3% will ever express celiac, okay? So it's not just genetics. Genetics are kind of what the tendency is toward, but what really then happens is our interactions with our environment. And that ultimately determines a lot of expressions. Now, some genes are so powerful that they just express straight through uh, and, that's all there is to it. But the majority of genes are influenced by being turned on and off by this concept of epigenetics. And that's how we interact with our environment, which is why we see disease increased risk in terms of early childhood trauma, which is why as we're exposed to toxins, we can. some people will get sick and some people won't get sick. So post-COVID syndrome, we're still debating the numbers, but somewhere between 10 to 30% of people have post-COVID syndrome. That's not 100%. So what's different about those individuals than other individuals? And we don't quite know the answer to that yet. But unquestionably, a piece of the answer is their genetics that make them more susceptible too. And as they get sick, these things get turned it on. So genetics is unquestionably an important thing, an evolving concept, and we're learning more every single day. And it's going to become a more and more useful tool as we continue to learn. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS, EDS hypermobility is, on, is, if you've ever been in the circus and you've seen the contortionist, that is EDSH, okay? It's a disease of the connective tissue, which makes it extremely elastic. And uh, there's 13 subtypes of which 85% of them are the hypermobile type. 
but we don't know the genetics of the hypermobile type. We know the genetics of all the others. So the hypermobile type is a clinical diagnosis and an important diagnosis, by the way, because it can lead to chronic pain. It can lead to problems with maintaining your blood pressure and your pulse rate. And there's a high number of kids I see who that diagnosis was missed in. And so uh, understanding how to make that diagnosis, which is actually pretty straightforward, um, but you see kids with uh, chronic dislocations of shoulders or uh, knees or hips. Um, and these are kids who you need to pay attention to because um, you have to treat them differently uh, than others in terms of they respond differently to anesthetic agents, they respond differently to surgery. Uh, so you need to be make the diagnosis and be aware of it. And then you need to treat them in terms of managing their pain and their uh, other problems. Now, the one problem they don't have is as they get much older, they don't wrinkle. So, <laughs> There's always so, a silver lining. <laughs> yeah, silver. <laughs> now, what about the toxins in the environment? We want to touch on those for sure. Uh, we can't see them, can't taste them, but they're there. Yeah, we have horribly uh, soiled our nests. Uh, the uh, coal-burning plants send mercury into the upper atmosphere. It rains down into the oceans and the water, fresh waters, and gets taken up increasingly by the plankton and all the way up the line. So the fish at the top of the line, trout in fresh water, um, and uh, swordfish and sharks and uh, tuna uh, in the ocean fish uh, are horribly contaminated uh, with mercury. Uh, lead uh, is a significant problem from the paints we used to use. And in fact, a couple of years ago um, in New Orleans, when they were sanding down the uh, sandblasting those old mansions, uh, repairing them from the floods that had occurred with Katrina, um, they were putting lead into the air and they suddenly had this outbreak of lead intoxication among the kids. Well, it's good they're focused on lead intoxication in kids. But lead in adults causes hypertension and causes brain damage as well. So it's not just the kids that we need to be paying attention to. Uh, the drinking water, you know, Flint was unquestionably a, a bellwether uh, issue in terms of lead in the drinking water in the schools and in the whole environment, which is absolutely horrific, uh, criminal. But the fact of the matter is, is a very high percentage of lead in our schools drinking water because of the soldering um, types of pipes that were used. Um, to transport water, and most of those have not been replaced yet. So we have lots of heavy metals in the atmosphere, We have in the, our environments. We have lots of other toxins, such as mold. So if you've been in a water-damaged building, and uh, what happens is water combined with cellulose, that is the wallboard in your house, becomes lovely food for mold. Mold grows there, especially black molds, but mold grows there and produces toxins. And those toxins are poisonous to about 20% of people because we don't have the genes that tell us to make the enzymes to break them down. So that's a nice example of genetic susceptibility or not. So I have couples where they have literally had to abandon their house because the husband or wife was completely unable to live in it because of the mold toxicity issue. And the other spouse had no problem at all. It's so, funny that, you know, with all this stuff, what we can't see, we don't really take heed, you know, it, it, but it, you know, more and more, the toxicity in our environment, it, it, people are starting to bang the drum a whole bunch more. There are ways to test for these things, correct? 
we are there are vehicles that we can use to test our home um and so it is an important piece and i and you know as you're talking about here when it comes to brain inflammation an extremely important piece we see that a lot in um testing correct Absolutely. The, you know, mold toxins in particular are neurotoxins and immunotoxins. So they damage both the immune system and they damage uh, the uh, brain. And so, uh, and we can, we also, you know, you're drinking almond milk. Sounds like a good idea, except that almond milk is notorious for having mold toxins in it. Uh, your coffee, your coffee, unless it's mold free, your coffee can have mold toxins in it. And so you really have to be a smart consumer to make sure that the foods you're consuming aren't filled with hidden toxins. And that's a big problem. I, they, they just published the latest list of, uh, of non-organic foods. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, top on that list is strawberries because of pesticides covering them. Yeah. So you need to make sure that you're washing your foods. But sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, it's not going to help to wash the food because the the chemical has been taken up inside the food and just continues uh, through the processing problem to end up on your table. So, you know, this is a big issue. And so you've got to pay attention to all of this stuff. There's testing you can do to see if you have mold toxins in your system. Uh, there's urine tests that can be done. There are companies that do this. There are companies that also uh, do environmental air checks uh, to see if there's mold toxins in your house or your apartment. Uh, and always we encourage people uh, to get this done because this starts the problem with breaking the immune system that sets it up for when the infection comes along. That now what happens is the immune system really gets broken and starts to attack your brain. So, and I encourage people if they're doing air quality testing, they find someone who only tests and doesn't fix because they don't want anybody to have incentive to find and then mm -hmm. uh, make more work for themselves. Fair enough. So there's lots of testing that can be done and you need to be paying attention uh, to what your environment is, what food you're eating uh, and also the stressors in your life and how you're managing them. Well, the ownership come back, comes back to us. This is a recurring theme. Uh, you know, our own health is in our, our own hands. Now let's talk about your books. So uh, your first book, Total Recovery, a Revolutionary New Approach to Breaking the Cycle of Pain and Depression. So that was published, what, about 10 years ago? No, almost, about seven years ago. Yeah. Seven years ago. And so your new book that's coming out uh, May of this year, Why You Are Still Sick, June, June of this year. Um, is this an evolution, your second book, or a different topic? Uh, this is a different topic, and it is a lot of self-help. It is very specific on how to, what testing you can do, what labs you can use, uh, and what things you can do yourself in order to help yourself get better, and how you can educate yourself and your doctor. So the first book was mostly about the innate immune system, the first responders. That was the first thing we discovered in terms of inflammation in the brain. The second book is how our acquired immune system, the one that produces antibodies, uh, comes into play as well. And then it also talks about mast cell activation syndrome a little bit, which is another piece of the immune system. Mm -hmm. It puts together a much bigger picture. It gives you a lot more self-help things to do, things you can do to take care of yourself, testing you can do to take care of yourself uh, and your loved ones. And uh, it is a path forward. It's a clear outline in terms of how you get sick, why you stay sick, and most importantly, how you can recover. So while you're still sick is very much about 
putting in your hands the tools necessary to help you or your loved ones recover. Can this go outside of the states? These these um, methods can go outside of the states. So how we can take care of ourselves is not just U.S. testing. We can, like for here in Canada, applicable strategies. Sure, there are tests that you yes 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 yes. So there are tests that you can certainly order uh, from the states and then uh, send them back in order to do stool testing. It can be done. There's uh, mold testing that can be done. So those tests can be done and sent back. Uh, and yes, there's much you can do and. Uh, We've also given an outline of different diseases you want to think about along with your physician. So there are things you can do, but there's also, we've put enough in there. As I said, they were the original, uh, for the book itself, there's well over a thousand medical references. Okay. This is not my opinion. This is what we found in the literature. This is uh, what's backed by science. And so there's a lot there for which you can also use to educate your physician. <laughs> to help them understand how to better help you. Yes, if you have an open physician, that would be a wonderful thing to have in hand. If you have an open physician, fire them. Hmm. Go find someone who is. Or put together a team that's necessary, natural paths, along yeah. with potentially an acupuncture herbalist. You may need to put together your own team, but this can also help guide you in terms of how to accomplish that. Do you have a pre-order list that we can jump on? Because I'm definitely going to be on it. Well, thank you. And yes, we do. So the book will be available for pre-order uh, after May 1st, uh, and it's on Amazon. Excellent. So, or alternatively, you can go to uh, our website, uh, kaplanclinic.com, uh, and uh, you'll be able to pre-order it there. So K-A-P-L-A-N clinic.com, uh, and we have the ability for you to pre-order it there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's such an enlightening topic. And it's, you know, I really am honored to have uh, a mover and shaker like you. Um, I look up to people like you that really do, really do want to take care of people and move them in the right direction. So thank you so much time for donating your time to us. Kathy, thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege of being here. We've got a lot of people we need to help and we need to get better. So thank you for all the work you're doing. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Just absolute pleasure. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.